0: Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Dr. Kevin Dutton. He is uh, the author of The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Uh, His book was recommended to me by a regular listener, Tim, if you're listening. So thank you for that recommendation. Recommendation. Delighted to have you with us, Kevin. Hello. Hi, Richard. How are you? Good. I'm doing really well. And we've got the video turned off because you're uh, ensconced in your Cotswold bowl hole, as I understand, in the countryside in England. I do. a Well, actually, I'm probably doing a
1: huge service to your listeners by having that video turned off, Richard. But I live yeah. (laughs) Apologies for that, folks. I live in a a remote Cotswold Valley. And um, unless I don't know how long this podcast is going to be, but unless you want it to last for six hours with loads of cutting in and out, it's probably better to have the video off, I think. So uh, (laughs) save everyone a bit of time.
0: Yeah. Well, let's start with a a what is a psychopath, Kevin? Well, it's a good question, Richard, and
1: it's a very important one to start off with because, of course, as soon as most people hear the word psychopath, they instantly think of Hannibal Lecter in, you know, in fiction and and Ted Bundy um, in real life, these kinds of serial killers and rapists and, and what have you. But actually, when psychologists like myself talk about psychopaths, we're in fact referring to a distinct subset of individuals with a specific uh, constellation, as it were, of personality characteristics, such as you've got your ruthlessness, you've got fearlessness, you've got mental toughness, you've got um, confidence, you've got coolness under pressure, you've got emotional detachment. and, And then of course, you've got your trademark deficits in conscience and empathy that you hear so much about. Now, I think one of the things that's really important to remember right off the bat, Richard, is that none of those characteristics that I've just mentioned about psychopaths, none of those personality traits is necessarily a problem in itself. Um, but rather, um, the problem lies if you I suppose, deploy them in the wrong contexts and with the wrong intentions. So I'm sure we'll come on to that a bit later on when we talk about Mm. professions and where psychopaths can thrive. But actually, the short answer is that, you know, when you talk about a psychopath, um, uh, technically, you are talking about someone with a distinct subset of personality characteristics, such as, as I say, ruthlessness, fearlessness, um, and lack of conscience and empathy, those kinds of things.
0: Right. Right. And, and, uh, what, yeah, what drew you particularly to this, uh, to this topic? Like why, why devote your life to this area?
1: Well, yeah, uh, you know, I have to say, um, if I'm being totally honest, um, uh, my father, my father was looking back on it, a psychopath. Um, he had, uh, well, I came from working class family. Um, he had all kinds of different jobs. He was, um, uh, he worked in a bookmaker's he uh he was a market trader, not on the stock market but on the streets. <laughs> he was like Delboy, even looked like delboy. He could sell all kinds of things to all kinds of people, most of them were rubbish and didn't work um but he was he was ruthless, he was fearless, he was charming um I never once saw him embarrassed and um you know he was shameless and and he could do things that most normal people would find. Completely psychologically impossible. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I always remember uh, one evening when I was a little boy, um, him taking me out to an Indian restaurant for dinner um, in the East End of London. And um, just as he's about to pay the bill, um, I always remember him turning around to me and saying, Kev, if there's one thing I want you to remember in life, son, it's this, persuasion ain't about getting people to do what they don't want to do. It's about giving them a reason to do what they do want to do. So watch and learn. I always remember he took his spoon and he tinkled it against his glass and the entire restaurant fell silent. Then dad got to his feet and he starts to make a speech, an impromptu speech, and he says, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming. Now, I know that some of you have come from just around the corner and some of you have come from a little bit further afield, but I want you to know that you're all very welcome. And that is very much appreciated. Oh, um, and there's a pub across the road called the King's Arms in which we'll be hosting a little drinks reception after this. It would be great to see you all there. Right. At which point he starts to clap, at which point, picture the scene, right? The entire restaurant starts to clap. Right. So all of a sudden we've got <laughs> a restaurant full of people never seen us before, never seen each other before, all applauding wildly because none of them want to be seen as the gate crashes to the party. Right. Well, anyway. As we're leaving, remember, I'm only about nine or ten. I can't resist it. So I said, Dad, I mean, we're not really going to the pub, are we? And I'll never forget it, Richard. He puts his arm round me and he says, course not, son. But let me tell you something. That lot in the restaurant, are my mate Malcolm, he's just taken over as landlord. He'll make a few quid tonight. Now, can you imagine, mate, how much money I would have to pay you or any of your, well, most of your listeners, because someone might be psychopaths, can you imagine how much money I'd have to pay you to even attempt to even think of pulling a stunt like that? But that was the kind of thing that my old man would do without batting an eye, without thinking about it. He was just totally in the moment, you know, never mind about the consequences. Let's just do it. Um, you know, whatever. And, and he, you know, if, he, if that was him to a T. And I think looking back on it, um, he was, de- he wasn't an educated man, but he was certainly one of the, um, most persuasive men I've ever met in my life, certainly psychologically insightful, um, in that way. And I think watching my dad, um, among people and the way he dealt with people, um, I think it not only kind of got me interested in psychopaths much later on in life, it was probably the instigator to me uh, studying psychology itself in the first place, really.
0: Right. Yeah. What an extraordinary story. I actually imagine Dellboy Boy doing that. And for those, who don't get the reference. He's a, a well-loved character on British television, yeah, a market trader.
1: Well, he even and, looked uh, like Del Boy. My dad even looked yeah. like Del Boy. He, was, he, was, he really was. He was a rough diamond, but he was a cheeky chap, and he could get away with it. But as I say, he, was, he certainly exhibited. He wasn't a violent man, Richard. He wasn't a violent man. But then again, you know, if you think about the characteristics that I've just outlined, you don't necessarily need to be violent to be a psychopath. That's one of these myths. Um If you are a naturally aggressive person and you uh are a violent person and you also have those psychopathic characteristics, then you may well turn into a violent criminal um but or you're you'll be more likely to use violence in order to get what you want but if you're a psycho if you have those psychopathic characteristics of ruthlessness and fearlessness and charisma and low conscience and empathy, and you're not necessarily violent then um you might go into you know you might end up uh, becoming a a con artist or something like that um and not using violence um so you know he was uh, looking back on it as i say he wasn't a violent man but he was ruthless and he was fearless and he was shameless and and as i say had all the hallmarks of um of someone who, who i would say you know as i uh, as i write in a book would be high on the psychopathic spectrum so that's the other thing which i always kind of try to make clear you know being a psychopath is not an all or nothing black or white thing. You're either a psychopath or you're not. Yeah, okay, at the extreme ends of the spectrum, you're going to have people who are pure psychopaths, and you can certainly sense that they are once you've had a bit of experience around these people. Um, but, you know, we're all on a spectrum. That's the key. There's just like the autistic spectrum, um, spectrum of autistic behaviors. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of there being a psychopathic spectrum. Um, And we're all on it to some extent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just interested as well. um, So were there any adverse impacts on you as a child? Was there any kind of a dark side to his psychotomy that you experienced? Do
1: you know what? Actually, Richard, if I'm being totally honest, I've got, you know, my dad passed away uh, 20 years ago now or so, I believe. Uh anyway. Um, but um, you know, looking back on it, I have nothing but fond memories of my dad, actually. He was, as I say, a very charismatic uh person, uh, a very charming person. He was a very warm person. Now, whether whether he was or not, I don't really know. He was certainly very good at faking it. Um right. but I, I can honestly say no, there were no real um, ne- I can't really think of any negative impacts on, on my, on my life. I think I, I, when I look back at things, I, I think mainly of the positives really. And, you know, my dad yeah. was very much the kind of guy that would say, you know, if you really want something, go for it. You know, don't, you know, don't, don't think about the negatives, think about the positives. And of course, psychopaths are very reward driven. That's one of the things that sets them apart from, um, from many other people. They, you know, um, one of the reasons why they're very good um in um under conditions of uh where you know uh, of grave danger for instance where the rest of us might be really um you know concerned about what's happening psychopaths seem to have this absolute um nonchalance where they can act um very calmly and very coolly because they're very you know in, in certain situations they're very driven and drawn by what they can gain from the situation rather than what they can lose so I think that you know one of the things that that, that my dad that probably the, the the biggest thing I I draw from him is is that ability to um you know to see the positives in situations I mean I wasn't as as you know um um you know averse uh to um you know to coming unstuck as as, as he was but uh, you know I I I certainly inherit a little bit of the um uh of that kind of um I don't know um
0: Desire for 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 risk and going for it that he had, right. And interesting, have you done it? Done one of the tests? Have you discovered how much of a psychopath you are?
1: Yeah, I think we're a bit pushed for time. You got the next question there, Richard. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean actually, <laughs> I think yeah. I mean, I think you've that... got his charm, Kevin. You've got uh, his charm well, with well, his humor. I mean, Well, yeah, I'm trying. I've been trying to get away, get, get away with it for a few years now. But um, actually, I mean, it's funny, I I am quite high on the psychopathic spectrum, and I'm not afraid to admit that, Richard, but let me put it in context. So imagine that you've got, imagine that um you've got your, your, your psychopathic characteristics, such as ruthlessness, fearlessness, et cetera, et cetera. And if you imagine those kinds of characteristics as being almost like uh, the psychological events in a decathlon, right? You know what a decathlon is, right? You know, mm-hmm. an athletic event yeah. with, with kind of 10, um, uh, 10, 10 kind of different events. You've got your javelin, 100 meters, meters all those kinds of things. So if you imagine that psychopathy consists of like 10 personality characteristics, sub axes of yeah. personality. So these are your 10 events in your psychopath decathlon, as it were, um, you know, your pure psychopaths, Um, are going to be really really great performers high scorers in all of those um and for me i suppose one of the things which prevents me from you know not being flippant about it just trying to make it easy to understand one of the things that prevents me from being a world-class olympian psychopath is the fact that you know when it comes to something like conscience More, more county level yeah, you're That's exactly right. You know, I'm a good club psychopath. You know, I'm a good, I'm a good, I'm a good county. <laughs> as, as you're right. My conscience event is pretty weak. So, you know, I have a pretty strong conscience. So I wouldn't deliberately go out to shaft anyone or do anyone down or, 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 or anything like that. So that I suppose, again, not to be flippant, kind of lets me down as it were in the, um, in the psychopath stake. So I'm high. I've got some good events. Um, but I've got some pretty pretty weak events too. So I might be, as you say, yeah, I'm a good county-level psychopath. That's a good way of putting it.
0: Right. So I'm interested. Well, on the ones that you're high on, how do you use those to your your advantage?
1: Well, I think, um, as I say, in terms of uh, fearlessness, I've never really been that worried about too many things. So, um, you know, I, as I say, I don't let too, I, I don't worry about too many things. And I'm very good at um uh, decoupling what I call decoupling emotion from behavior I think that's a very interesting thing that actually is a very healthy mm. question that many of us could ask ourselves and that is you know since since when do you need to feel like doing something in order to do it uh, well the answer is pretty much never because you know if we felt you know none of us really feel like getting out of bed in the morning and yet we do it. if we didn't get out of bed in the morning we wouldn't do anything right so and um, decoupling emotion from behavior is something that I've always been pretty good at. And I, I'll give you a great example of this. There was a study conducted a few years ago by somebody where they looked at, um, you know, when you go on holiday, right? You um, you, you go on, well, how can, we, can we ever remember when we went on holiday, right? Um, but uh, you go on holiday and you're in your swimming trunks or your bathing costume or whatever. And you've got the sea and the swimming pool right in front of you. There's two kinds of people in the world, Richard. There's people that just jump straight in or run straight in and get all the cold, all that pain over and done with in in one bash. Uh, they're that we have call the jumpers or the runners. And then you've got what we call the splashers, right? You know what I'm going to say. People that kind of tiptoe into the sea, take 30 minutes That's to get in but- or... Yeah, or, or like tiptoe, <laughs> tiptoe down the stairs of the swimming pool and you know, you're gradually getting up to your knees and oh, and it's terrible. And then finally you That's get me. in. Well, there was a study. You'll be, you'll be, be pleased to know there was a study done a few years ago by someone, I can't remember who it was now, who, who, who wanted to find out, a uh, research team, who experienced the most pain. <laughs> was it the jumpers? Um, or was it the splashers? Was it the tiptoeers? And actually they uh, discovered probably um, unsurprisingly that it was the people that inched their way in, experienced more aggregate pain because of course, not only were they aggregating it out over a long period, there was also the imaginary pain that they thought they were going to experience. And we imagine pain often to be far greater than it was. So did, they didn't just eke it out for longer. They also had that problem with the imagination. It's going to be far worse than it actually was. So, What's that got to do with everyday life? Well, actually, you know what it's got to do with everyday life is we psychologically splash every time we've got to do something that we don't want to do. If you've got to, I don't know, pick the phone up and give someone bad news or do a chore that you don't want to do, something you've been putting off for a long time, what do we do? We put the kettle on, we do our email, we make a cup of tea, we tidy up, we do anything but get on with what we're meant to be doing. We psychologically splash. Whereas actually what we really should be doing is harnessing our inner psychopath, decoupling emotion from behavior, and saying, "Hey, let's just do it, let's just bomb straight into this pool, run straight into this sea, and get this over and done within one fell swoop um, so that's something I've pretty good I've always been pretty good at there. That. That's just one example and it's something it's one of those psychopathic characteristics that I think if you know if as I say, if your listeners um, are struggling with procrastination, are struggling with that kind of all putting things off. Um, they're psychological splashes by nature. Just by being aware of that little analogy, as I say, you know, that's a great kind of way in which you can harness a psychopathic characteristic, uh, to your advantage and you perhaps make you a little bit more efficient, a little bit more assertive, a little bit more confident, whatever.
0: Yeah. And I totally relate that with sales calls. And I noticed that salespeople are quite high on the psychopathy. I'm a massive splasher when it comes to sales calls and I I'll press procrastinate for hours until I get on the phone and, you know, call to people in my network. And yeah. And uh that makes complete sense that actually there's a guy who's been on the show, who's a sort of sales coach and he, he makes this play for, you know, just, just do it. Just like set yourself at like three calls, just do it now. And, uh, and jump and dive into it, and don 't think about it, and just just call the first three people on your phone, whatever it needs to be, just dive in um, and I 'm guessing that people who are salespeople who tend to be higher on the psychopathy scale have uh, find that easier, hence they they gravitate towards that profession.
1: Well, you know what uh, you know, professional psychopathic professions are very interesting, but I always remember when we were a student we used to play a dress book Russian roulette. Um, And I'm not suggesting anybody does this, um, but I can say that sometimes a few drinks were taken before we used to play this game. And it was basically you just, um, you know, somebody finds uh, something you hand somebody your mobile phone um, and they pick two people at random from your address book that you have to ring up there and then. Um, And of course, the Russian roulette um, element comes in where it could be somebody you haven't spoken to for three years for very good reasons, uh, but you just have to do it. Um, if ever you want to get over, you know, um, making that sales pitch, that's a great game to play, but it is a dangerous one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You also talk about it in terms of um, uh, boys and girls and, uh, you know, making approaches uh, in girls. And, you know, there's a game you mentioned um, where the the idea was you just had to – in fact, it was your friend. Was it your friend? I can't remember exactly the contest for it now. But the the game was to try and get as many no's as possible in yeah. the night from, from knockbacks of girls. And uh, you know, the the lesson is that uh, after X number of knockbacks, you start actually getting more acceptances because you've become so cocky in the process that you actually become attracted. That,
1: that's exactly right. I think it was, I, if memory serves me right, I, was, I think it was somebody I interviewed in a high security unit, actually, that, uh, right, okay, that, came, yeah. that came up with that. And yes, absolutely right. Go, that's right, yeah. They would go out in a group um, in um, uh, on a Friday or a Saturday, a Friday night, where, you know, as a, as a group of four lads. Um, and the, um, the, the aim of the game was to get as many rejections from, um, uh, girls as they possibly could. Um, and there was a great incentive to do this because the next night, the Saturday night, whatever night it was, they would, uh, the person that got the more, the most rejections would have the beers, all their drinks paid for them by the other three. Um, but there was a great method in this madness, uh, and that was that, of course, you know, once you actually start realizing that getting rejected doesn't really matter, and actually you know, you just move on to someone else or whatever, and you're not the end of the world if people don't like you or don't want to go out with you or don't want to give you their number, then all of a sudden what starts happening is you naturally start getting more confident. It doesn't matter to you anymore getting rejected, and of course, once you start getting more confident, you become more appealing uh and then you don't start getting rejections anymore um and as i say you that, that's that you know when, when when that starts to happen the dynamic completely reverses and um you know you're no longer losing the game you're winning the game um and you you you're a completely changed character so yeah i mean actually there was a lot of method in that madness and um it, it's all to do with confidence but you were talking about you know professions and uh, yeah, sales are, um, uh, I conducted an experiment. I'm not sure if you, you know, maybe your listeners might not know it, but, um, conducted a, a survey a few years ago, about 10 years ago now, I think it was, um, in which I wanted to know which was the UK's most psychopathic profession. So I was on a radio show and we put out a call and we had a website. And, um, what happened was people were directed onto the website where they completed a specially designed, um, a uh, questionnaire, psychometric questionnaire designed to measure psychopathic characteristics within the general population. Um, There's separate questionnaires for the general population, for the criminal forensic population, uh, which is very important to bear in mind. Uh, you shouldn't confuse them. Um, so people were directed onto the website where they completed um, the psychometric um, measure for psychopathy in the general population. Um, and they then gave their occupation. Um, and as I say, they got their scores, and then I was able to look at the analysis afterwards and and we compared occupations with score. Um it was a very rough and ready kind of survey, but actually it was very, very interesting what came out. And um number one, um, perhaps not surprisingly, was CEOs. Um uh number two off the top of my head, I'm going off the top of my head now, Richard. Number two, I think, was lawyers. Then we had the media, TV and radio. And then I think salespeople came in at number four, um, and surgeons were up there, I think, number five. Um, but what was really interesting, I think number eight or nine was church people. And at the time, as I say, this is about 10 years ago. At the time, this yeah, was – cleric, it,
0: number eight. I've got the page here. That's yeah,
1: right. Was it? Yeah, clerics. And, and I think it was eight or nine. And um, Eight
0: for clerics. Was, yeah. it,
1: was it eight? There you go. Mem- good memory I've got there <laughs> Um, it was really, it's very interesting because at the time you thought, well, you know, what's that all about? But, um, you know, there's been, as I said, since then, there's been a few stories about the church in, in the media. And I'm, you know, I'm not casting any aspersions as, as bad eggs in, in any profession. But, um, you know, actually, if you think about the church and religion, it's in one aspect, it's no different to any other business. It's all about, you know, if you, you've got to have a certain kind of personality to get to the top, there's a hierarchy in, in the church um just like any other business um and it's also you could argue very much to do with um the uh implementation of power you've got a lot of power over people in the church and i'll always remember a few years ago when i was in cambridge um talking to uh, quite a high high powered church person and them turning around it's one of the most chilling remarks anyone had ever made in their life to me. And they turned around and they said, Kev, I don't believe in God. I'm just good at him. Um <laughs> and I remember be I remember thinking, Blimey, um, yeah, you know, I can I can believe that in your case. I, I don't believe in God. I'm just good at him. And that was, you know, I've met a lot of psychopaths in in um in 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 a lot of different circumstances. But even now that was probably one of the most chilling things anyone had uh, had actually
0: said to me. Right. Kind God, of God by numbers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just, they, the, the expression popped out in the, in the book that you use, you know, psychos like are able to do emotions by numbers. And they're actually better. This is what I found fascinating. They, am I right that they're better at recognizing emotions in general than. Do you know what, Richard? I thought,
1: I, I thought that was a good line, do, do emotions by numbers. And I thought, of course, I'd totally forgotten I'd written it. Uh, but I thought. <laughs> Yeah, modesty is another another psychopathic trait, of course. But um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. There are um, a number of experiments which appear to reveal that psychopaths are better at kind of gauging emotion than the rest of us, um, or at least as good. um, Which is very interesting because um, there's also evidence which suggests quite strongly that psychopaths don't feel emotion like the rest of us. Um, they don't have what's called hot empathy. Hot empathy is um, the feeling of feeling what another person is feeling. You know, it's really empathizing with them. Whereas actually, they seem to be much better than the rest of us at what we call cold empathy, which is kind of cognitively and dispassionately imagining uh, what another person might be feeling. And of course, that enables them to be. Very, very good persuaders. We talked about that with with my dad. That's one of the reasons perhaps why he was such a brilliant persuader. He was also very charismatic. But why psychopaths may be a very good persuader is very manipulative. And I remember talking to one guy who was a psychopath, a pure psychopath in a um, in a high security unit. And again, another quite chilling comment uh, that he made to me. He said, you know, Kev, he said, you don't need to have color vision." to um, understand how a traffic signal works, how traffic lights work. You just have to know which bulb is lit up. And that was one of the truest things, I think, that, that, that any uh, one mm. of the truest insights that any psychopath had ever had into their, I suppose, own condition, because, you know, traditionally psychopaths don't have that much insight. Um, uh, maybe it wasn't an insight, maybe it was just, telling me a fact you know that that's you know that's the truth but but actually that's a very very good way of looking at how psychopaths go through life they don't see the color of emotions but they do see which bits light up um and as i say that makes them very dangerous individuals in the wrong circumstances because they can engage in persuasion they can engage in debate without feeling the heat and the light the cut and thrust of battle, they're almost like psychological surgeons. They can stand back, uh, as I say, cognitively cognitively and dispassionately pushing the buttons and pulling the levers, um, which gives them a real advantage, this ability to remain very cool under the pressure of cut and thrust debate and persuasion.
0: Right, yes. Um, And it reminds me of, uh, because I watched the Ted Bundy documentary on Netflix Right, um, I haven't seen recently. it actually. Yeah, but he yeah, was the obviously, takes. yeah, just extraordinary. And I still, even by the end of it, find it almost impossible to reconcile this this character before me. He seems so warm and charming and lovable and gentle. And yeah, you know, the, the, the facts of his crimes it, just extraordinary.
1: Well, it is. I mean, one of the things that psychopaths play on, of course, is is uh, is you know, we we have a natural kind of tendency to you know believe what we see. And to be taken in by, um, by, by what's in front of us. And, you know, if you've got someone who's acting normal, you, your brain automatically, you know, our brains didn't evolve to analyze every single scenario that we encounter from first principles. We, we go by rules of thumb. And if you see someone that's very pleasant, I mean, you know, psychopaths are very rare, Richard, you know, you talk pure psychopath. Mm. You're talking, you know, half to 1% of the population. Um, so you don't go through life, you know, actually, even if you, you know, you don't, you don't, most of us don't think bad of people all the time. If you meet someone, you know, who's, who's not, you give them the benefit of the doubt usually. But if, so if you meet someone that's very charming and very nice, um, you know, it's in your interest to say, well, hey, this is a nice guy. I can get on with him. Um And, and that's something which psychopaths use to their advantage. You know, they're, 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 they're very good at putting on that persona this kind of psychological camouflage, you know, hiding in plain sight is the phrase that's often used. Um, they're almost like psychological, you know, psychological double agents. Um, and they're able to lure us into their trust. Um, and then of course, you know, you get stung later, they exploit you later. Uh, but you know, as you, you know, you'd have to be a very, very dumb psychopath to you know portray yourself as like um, a ruthless criminal. Um and think you <laughs> right. think you're gonna get away with it, you know, and and you know, you're not going to do that. You have to go in under a cloak of disguise, don't you?
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. And and th- and then what's also interesting, and right, I you cite, I think, one of your fellow researchers who was retelling the story of being in in a in a prison and um well shitting himself basically when this particular psychopath switched from that persona into this cold-eyed stare. When he'd asked asked him the wrong kind of question and pushed his buttons, and no, it also that came was through in the TED, but
1: yeah, oh, that it was me. you, that, was, that it? was it? That was me. Yeah, no, that was me. That was um, it was yes. I I remember it was in the very early stages when I'd first studying studying uh, studying psychopaths, and um, I went into this high security unit, and there was um, a not very nice guy. On the ward it was a hospital and um he uh, he looked very avuncular i seem to remember he looked uh, he looked like captain bird's eye he had a big gray beard he was quite jolly he had like you know elasticated trousers on and a, and a kind of a a, a a woolly jumper and um i was on the ward and knew and he said oh i'll show you round and he did um and he showed me his room and we had a little walk about and then um, it was very funny because the clinical lead on the ward had gone off to perform an errand of some sort. So I was just walking around. Oh, I didn't feel in any danger at all. There were, you know, there's people there, you know, and um, he made a joke. He said, um, you know, I'll show you around. I promise I won't kill you. And I kind of, you know, chuckled and laughed and, you know, blah, 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 and off we went. And 20 minutes later, he'd shown me, you know, various places on the ward and all that. And then we came back and it was time for me to go elsewhere. And he said, "Um, there you go, son, I promised I wouldn't kill you. And I didn't. And I kind of laughed. I went, yeah. And instantly flick of a switch kind of thing. His eyes just changed and his whole demeanor changed and became glacially cold. And he fixed me with these really really cold eyes and he said you don't get it do you son i told you i wouldn't kill you and i didn't and i learned a very big lesson that day richard and that was that you know what these people uh, they and it goes back to your earlier point they may look very much like the rest of us they may sound very much like the rest of us but actually um they have a completely different moral compass to the rest of us. And actually, when he said, I promise I won't kill you. And I didn't, I took that as a joke, but actually, you know, there was a real sense in which he meant that literally. And yeah. when I laughed it off, it was me disrespecting him. It was me dissing him. And then he suddenly turned. Um, I never made that mistake again. <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> yeah. it was, you had to be there. It's kind of, um, it's powerful in the telling, but you, 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 you had to be there to, to really get the sense of how how chilling that actually really was,
0: yeah, and it well, it reminds me very much of the same story on this Ted Bundy documentary, where the, it was a prison guard describing being in a lift with Ted Bundy, and Ted Bundy suddenly had that same switch, and he was suddenly in the lift with Ted Bundy with this cold eyed stare. Yeah, yeah, exactly Abs- absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Experience, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I just wonder, just to. To bring that, you know, so obviously this is in the context of of killers, and that's obviously how we often associate uh, psychopaths. But in just in the general sort of workplace, you know, you say 1% and a higher preponderance of those, uh, you know, presumably high, higher than 1% amongst uh, CEOs and senior executives and so on, which obviously many people listening to this will encounter on a daily basis. So what, you know, is it... What's there to kind of understand about people who are high on this scale on this spectrum in terms of interacting with them, interfacing with them? What you know, what what can people kind of take away from your experiences from that perspective?
1: Well, I, I think there's there's a number of different points there to to unpack, Richard. I think first yeah. of all, um, you know, you, you, you can have. I've done a lot of work with a guy, uh, who some of your listeners might know called Andy McNabb. Andy McNabb is yeah. a, a, an ex-SAS soldier, an entrepreneur, and a best-selling author these days. We've written a couple of books together on psychopaths. And Andy McNabb is a psychopath. Um, you know, I've, I, I've diagnosed him and I've, I've checked him out and he, he, he fits all the criteria and he freely admits that. Um, and it's really interesting. Andy and I have, um, on the back of my first book, *The Wisdom of Psychopaths*, first book on psychopaths. Anyway, we we came came up with this phrase called "good psychopaths." Um, and I'll give you a good example. So, um, you know, those traits. If you imagine psychopathic characteristics as, like I say, ruthlessness, fearlessness, self-confidence, coolness under pressure, emotional attachment, all those kind of things, as the dials on on a psychological mixing desk that you can twiddle up and down in various combinations you arrive at two conclusions, okay? Now, the first conclusion is that there is no one-size-fits-all objectively correct setting at which these dials may be positioned, but it will invariably depend on context upon the particular set of circumstances you Mm. might find yourself in, okay? Now, the second point, uh, which is directly related to your question here, is that there are also going to be certain professions which by their very nature are going to demand that some of these mixing desk dials be turned up just that little bit higher than average, demand what we might call, um, as I call it in the book, some precision-engineered psychopathy, okay? Now, we've hmm. already talked about some of those, um, you know, top psychopathic professions in the Great British Psychopath Survey that I conducted a few years ago. But, you know, imagine you've got the, um, I don't know, imagine you've got the skill set to be a top surgeon, right, which I think was number five in the list but that you yep. lack the ability to emotionally disengage from the person that you're operating on, right? You're not going to cut it, are you? quite literally, in fact. Mm. Um, and I've, I've, I've interviewed a lot of surgeons that totally get that. Imagine you've got the skill set to be a top, um, I don't know, lawyer, QC, barrister, but you lack that almost pathological self-confidence to be the centre of attention in the middle of a packed courtroom. Again, it's not going to work, is it? Imagine mm. you've got the... Uh, well, let's come on to CEO straight away. Imagine you've got the strategic and financial smarts to be a top business person, but the, you lack the ruthlessness to fire someone if they're underperforming or um, the coolness under pressure to ride out a storm or the sheer balls uh, necessary to take a calculated risk when appropriate. Okay, It's not going to work, is it? Now, those characteristics that I've just outlined for you there, ruthlessness, fearlessness, self-confidence, coolness under pressure, and emotional detachment – comprise five core characteristics of the psychopathic personality, okay? So in those particular contexts, would you say they were dysfunctional? I wouldn't. So certain mm. certain uh, professions of which CEO is one or business is one are going to demand um, certain psychopathic characteristics. Now, it's really interesting. In order to succeed in any given profession, Richard, you need two things. Firstly, you need the requisite skill set necessary to do the job. But secondly, you need the right kind of personality, right, to enable you to yeah. optimally operationalize that skill set. Um now, as I say, in those situations, uh, certain psychopathic characteristics are definitely going to predispose you to success. It's it's going to become no surprise to you or your listeners that, you know, it you know, certain in certain situations it's possible to bully or blag or bullshit or, you know, your way up the corporate ladder. Um, that's going to be no surprise to anybody. We've all experienced people that do that. But I think what is most interesting is that if you do have the requisite skill set to do what you 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 to do your job, um, certain psychopathic characteristics can actually help you get up the ladder. Um, but you've got going back to the mixing desk style, you've got to use them in the in the right context, in the right combinations, at the right levels and with the right intentions. So that's very much where I'm coming from. So a lot of the media at times have said Dutton. And when I've been working with Andy McNabb, Dutton and McNabb are trying to turn the nation into psychopaths. And, you know, what's possibly good about psychopaths, you know? And actually, that's not, that's never been my intention. What I've always said is that there are certain psychopathic characteristics which used in the right context, in the right combinations, at the right levels and with the right intentions can predispose you to success. And that's basically the, the, the argument that, that I'm using. So, you know, you, you CEOs are an interesting group because, you know, actually you, whether you've got a bad, you know, you, people think about, you know, psychopathic CEOs, you know, and there's been, you know, or, or people in business, your Gordon geckos, or, you know, your Jordan Belforts and all these kinds of people who are corporate psychopaths. Um, and they've allowed their mixing desk dials to be turned up too high, you know, and the, in the wrong levels, in the right context and for the wrong intentions. But actually, it's when you get the dials just right in the right context. Actually, that's when you get a good CEO. Um, another example would be sports. So, I, you know, I do a lot of work with elite sports people. And sports are very interesting genre to look at, because let uh, you give you an example, say somebody like Roger Federer, the tennis player. Now, mm-hmm. Roger Federer um, off court is one of the nicest people you could ever wish to meet. But on center court at Wimbledon or in Flushing Meadow or, or somewhere like that in New York, if he's in a Grand Slam final, he is absolutely ruthless and predatory. Um, and would have absolutely no problem at all. He's done it 20 times. He's won 20 Grand Slam finals. Absolutely no problem at all about humiliating his opponent in front of millions of viewers and a watching crowd. Um, now, you know, any top sports people that I've met um, absolutely have that killer instinct. They have no shred of compassion or remorse about humiliating opponent on a court where they're on or where they're playing. But, you know, just imagine that, you know, were Roger Federer to behave like that, you know, in everyday life, not on center court at Wimbledon, he'd soon find himself in a very different kind of court. Um, but it's really interesting, isn't it? Because all of a sudden when you talk to people like that, they have no problem accepting that in sport. It seems to be yeah. Yeah, okay. Par for the course. But if you switch that kind of behavior to the business arena, all of a sudden people have, you know, well, not all people, but some people have a real problem with that. More people, put it this way, more people have a problem with that in business than they do in sport. And usually what you hear is, well, you know, sports, well, it's not, not really real life, is it? Well, of course it's real life. You know, actually you're humiliating someone in front of a global audience. It couldn't be more real than that. You know, you are really meeting out a lot of pain and punishment on, on somebody. So what's the difference? And I think that's an interesting question to mull over.
0: Yeah, no, that is very, that, that, that's very interesting. Well, the first thing, two things thoughts come to mind. One is, I guess it's certainly in the case of that tennis situation, you, you one might argue, well, it's just one psychopath against another psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, as CEO, bullying and firing and harassing everyone in his orbit or her orbit, Um, it, you know, that's a different, you know, that's a different situation those people have not necessarily signed up for that kind of treatment yeah oh Um,
1: yeah sorry yeah yeah so
0: within the context of a social institution i guess the impact of psychopathy being expressed you know does have different ramifications and maybe that's part of the mix here yeah um but the other thought that came to mind was that uh, I remember a, a, an indif- interview with Steve Wozniak, of course, Steve Jobs is sidekick. Yeah, and you, yeah, you, yeah. You've, you've referenced Steve Jobs in the book. But yeah. uh, him saying, and, and, and I think the interview was, you know, calling out some of uh, Steve Jobs' negative traits. And, and Steve Wozniak says something to the effect of, yeah, but don't be too hard on Steve Jobs. I couldn't have done what he did. I thought it was yeah. quite an insightful thing to say.
1: Yeah, no absolutely and 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 Steve Jobs uh, he had some very interesting um, little quirks and um I think again came up with some very very useful tips and techniques that we can all learn from and I think one of the one of the um things I remember from Steve Jobs is that he would have he 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 once um um said that in order to succeed in life you need to say uh, no way more times than uh, you say yes. Um, and, you know, of course, when we say no to people, we disappoint them. Um, and it's often, you know, quite a few of us have problems saying no. And I seem to remember someone saying once that, you know, actually, um, Steve Jobs, you know, almost had a, a a ledger of, and he would check the number of times that his employees would, would say no compared to the amount of times that they would say, yes, he would have them keeping a a kind of a, a, a register of it. Um, now, whether that's apocryphal or not, I don't know. I mean, I can believe it. Um, in his quest to leave no stone unturned, but, but absolutely. It, again, it's another one of these simple little things that, you know, maybe in order to be a little bit more successful, something that Andy McNabb and I talk about in our, in our book, Good Psychopath's Guide to Success, you need to get used to saying no a little bit more. We need to be, you know, just a little, sometimes we need to be a little bit less nice. Um, and, you know, actually it's, it's really interesting. A lot of the time, uh, you could turn this on your head, actually, when you say no to people, a lot of the time, you know, people, when you drill down into it, people are frightened of saying no, because actually they don't want to disappoint someone. Uh, you, you know, you don't want to make them feel bad, but actually that's in itself a form of inverted narcissism, because actually you are immediately assuming there that you are really important. (laughs) Um, that actually, if you say no to this person, they are going to be totally crestfallen. <laughs> and actually, you know, sometimes you, you can have a little laugh with people and you can say, are you, re- do you really think that highly of yourself then? You know, do you really think it's going to matter that much if you say no? Well, I'll tell you what, why don't you give it a try and do it and see what happens. Yes. So it's a good way of kind of invert, fun way of kind of inverting it really, Richard.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I suppose practically it can people, t- if you like, switch from like hot empathy to cold empathy in that way, because to say no, you have to somehow detach yourself from the potential feelings that you're projecting onto that other person that they might feel upset or angry or whatever that might elicit as an emotion. Can Is it is it in fact practical for people to make that switch?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you can't, you can't, you know, turn overnight like that, you can't absolutely, you know, turn yourself into a different person. But actually, if you if you, you know, just start very slowly, Um, there yeah. are certain situations in which you say, okay, I've got something coming up now, I'm just going to try it. I'm just going mm-hmm. to say no to this. So yeah, I'm not, um, you know, it's very, very difficult, impossible, probably, you know, just to change overnight like that but you can do you can build it up over a period of time just like you know you i don't know training for an uh, training for the marathon or something you know just just start slowly and gradually build it up start with some easy no's and then gradually build
0: up to some harder ones yeah that's interesting and it, it actually relates to some I mean, perhaps we'll get on this as we sort of close out the hour here but the um a a guest on the podcast who you know is a, a religious man. um uh talks about making more space in in your in your life slowing down focus on on fewer things and of course the key to that is saying no um and he has this idea of no by default um and the way to do it maybe and he suggests this is not immediately coming out and saying no it's like well can you get can, can you give me 24 hours or can i get back to you on that as like a you know yeah. a means of delaying that immediate a softer way in perhaps that doesn't require such a you know, psycho- psychopathic approach, perhaps, is uh, not is quite, to start not with
1: that. quite, yeah, not quite jumping into the pool, but and not tiptoeing either, but maybe just going way steep a little bit, something like that. To use our early <laughs> yeah. analogy, I'd give a, yeah. a, a couple of, um, you know, a, 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 another suggestion there, and that is, you know, a good, a good, couple of good yardsticks is um, whenever you are asked to do something, right? Imagine that you are asked to, uh, will you do X and Y? Um, if you have a rating scale of zero to 10 and you say to people, yeah, okay, you know, rate, rate how, rate how much you enjoy doing this. Okay. So a lot of people, seven on a scale of zero to 10 is quite a common number. Um, yeah. and a lot of people will agree to do something if it approaches seven. Um, yeah. and then the problem with that is you, yeah, it's kind of, you're kind of okay, but you don't, maybe you don't really want to do it, but you end up doing it anyway. It's in this kind of no man's land. So a very simple, and I'm sure all you listen, we all, we've all done it. We've all hovered around the seven out of 10 and agreed to do something, right? So a very simple thing to do is when someone asks you to do something, if you don't want to say no straight away and you want to take this approach, you know, let's think about it. Draw a little rating scale out in front of you. And write down the numbers zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, but then miss seven out and go straight to eight, nine and 10. <laughs> and then say, right, you're going to rate how much you want to do this on this scale of zero to 10, but you don't have seven on there. You don't have that as an option. So you've got to either rate it as a six or you've got to rate it as an eight. That really forces your hand. If you rate it as a six, cause you're forced into doing that because there's no seven, don't do it. If you rate it as an eight then okay, probably chances are it's something you might want to do and agree to do it anyway. So that's a that's a good yardstick to use a little trick, um, which can sometimes make your diary a little bit more palatable. And another trick, which, again, Andy McNabb and I um, talk about in our book, is like, you know, next time someone asks you, 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 you must be inundated, as a lot of your uh, listeners will be, Richard, you know, can you do X, Y, and Z in a couple of months' time? So you look at your diary, there's nothing in it. Uh, the day's free. So you agree, yeah, because you want to be nice. You say, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And then what happens? That day rolls around quicker than anything, and it's the last thing you want to do, right? Yeah, why the F have
0: I got to do this Exactly.
1: (laughs) It's the last thing you want to do. So here's the interesting tactic to use. Okay, next time somebody asks you to do something, imagine they're asking you to do it tomorrow. Forget two months' time. Are they asking? Imagine, look at you, right, I'm doing it tomorrow. There might be something in the diary. Is what I'm doing in the diary, would I cancel that in order to do this? Are they paying me enough in order to cancel that to do this? Do I really want to do this tomorrow? Would I give up what I'm doing tomorrow if I've got a day off, for instance? Would I actually be happy to do this on my day off? If the answer is no to any of that, you say no to the request because in two months' time, it will be tomorrow and you will be faced with exactly that dilemma. So just bring it forward and have it as tomorrow and ask yourself the same question. There's nothing like bringing it forward to add clarity to your decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that. And I suppose that's the way of bringing it into the realm of of the sort of hot empathy, because you're making it more immediate. And, and if we are an empath, we could then you know, start to feel how that would be in our diary and our life and make a decision based on that. On that yeah, absolutely. On that. Yeah. It's
1: just, it's just Directing using, up.
0: using the power of imagination. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, no. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And it's, it's, well, it's, I know we've, we've, uh, you know, we've not, not got long here, but I, um, it was Garland Vance was the guest who, you know, he's written a book called getting unbusy and he has this, you know, thing oh, yeah. of, you know, no, by default, but the, the tips you've added there, you know, might be useful for him to sort of all consider for, for that approach, but. Um, yeah. Again, interestingly, again, this parallel, and you get to it in the last chapter of the book between, um, the sort of spiritual path and, and psychopathy and, and the parallels between, um, spirituality and psychopathy. And, um, I guess it's just, it's, it's interesting to see that there are these overlaps. Um, yeah. and uh, I guess, I guess is, is this a means of thinking about, psychopathy in a slightly different way that you know it's almost like it's a it's a way of directly uncoupling it from this idea that it's all sinners and actually there are all of these traits in some ways can can aid us even even in a in a a sort of quest for spiritual development
1: Well, I think that's probably putting it a that that argument's a bit strong, Richard. I think one of the (laughs) one of the interesting things, although although I thank you very much for making it, (laughs) um, but um I think what it's an interesting thing is 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 I was I was drawn to um the the parallels, the similarities between mindfulness um, which when I was writing Good Psychopath, uh, sorry, when I was, when I was writing The Wisdom of Psychopaths, um, mindfulness was relatively in its infancy in those days, back in 2012. It's now become obviously a huge phenomenon, global phenomenon. Um, and, um, was obviously derived from, from Buddhist practices. Um, and it's all about living in the moment mindfulness. And when I first came across mindfulness, it struck me that actually this is seen as an enhanced and elevated spiritual trait. But actually, this is something, this is also one of the primary um, criteria for psychopathy. The idea of, you know, no sense of consequence, living in the moment, uh, being a spur of the moment kind of person. In fact, I'll tell you what we might do if you want to. We can end with a little test to see if you're a psychopath. I can read out 11 items. Yeah. Uh, that you and your listeners can um, can have a go at and we'll see where you are on the psychopathic spectrum and yeah, we can do that it. if you like but um, yeah. just to, to, to come back to the mindfulness thing so so yeah I mean um one of the questions the reason I thought of that was one of the questions is um, you know are you a spur-of-the-moment kind of person so so when I first encountered mindfulness I thought well actually this is very very interesting because this kind of Uber spiritual quality of living in the moment is also, as I say, one of the, um, character traits of psychopathy. Um, and so I was very interested in that overlap. Um, you know, that this idea of living in a spur of the moment kind of living, um, you know, which is regarded as a, as a symptom, as you like, of psychopathy, um, you know, is, is, is in another camp, is in, a, on the other hand, regarded as, as, as a very enlightened spiritual kind of practice. Um, and so I, I looked at this a little bit more, and um, I asked one of the uh, one of the pioneers of mindfulness research, a chap called Mark Williams, who's a very good friend of mine um, in Oxford, uh, and I said to him, you know, what's what do you think the difference is between you know the kind of the 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 the, the spiritual practice of mindfulness and 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 you know almost like the psychopathic approach to it? And uh, I thought he gave a brilliant kind of response. There is a difference. And Ah. he says, whereas, like, the the, the spiritual will savour the moment, psychopaths will devour it. Uh, And I thought that's a very, very good way. Although the two might appear similar, and indeed there are degrees of similarity between um, the mindfulness living in the moment and the psychopathic living in the moment, um, the spiritual aspect is savoring that moment, whereas the psychopathic characteristic is devouring it. So I think that um, there, there's similarities, but there are differences as well. But I'll tell you what we'll do, if you like, if um, we can find out if uh, if you are a psychopath or where rather rather we won't do that because we'll be sued. Um, um, we'll find out where you are on the psychopathic spectrum, where your listeners are on the psychopathic spectrum. Would yeah. you like to do
0: that? Would you like to? Yes, okay. yes please.
1: So what you need to do, Rich, and what listeners need to do is you need to get a piece of paper or a pen or a yep. mobile phone screen because what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out 11 statements, okay? 11 statements. Yep. And your job is to score each of these statements according to how true a description you think each one is of you, Okay. Now, here's the scoring key you need to remember or write down. If you strongly agree with the statement, if you strongly agree, give yourself three points for that, okay? Yeah. If you agree, give yourself two points. If you disagree, give yourself one point. And if you strongly disagree, give yourself zero points, okay? Okay. Right. Okay, and I'm going to read out these 11 statements, and you are going to score them uh, uh, according to how accurate a description you think each one is of you. Start number one. There's 11 of these. Number one goes back to what we were talking about. I rarely plan ahead. I'm a spur-of-the-moment kind of person. I rarely plan ahead. I'm a spur-of-the-moment kind of person. Strongly agree, three. Agree, two. Disagree, one. Strongly disagree, zero. Okay?
0: Right to tell you as I go like, along, or just make a note. Uh,
1: um, when you see the next one, you might just want to make a note, okay? <laughs> number two, cheating on your partner is okay as long as you don't get caught. <laughs> I did you a favor there, Richard. I did you a favor there. <laughs> I could have put you. She right never on listens her. to these anyway. <laughs> I could have put you right on the spot there, mate. But um, number two, cheating on your whenever you do this in universities, this is one where you always see people looking over their shoulder, see what's, see what they're putting on you. Uh, cheating on your partner is okay as long as you don't get caught. Number three. If something better comes along, it's okay to cancel a long-standing appointment. Uh, Number four, seeing an animal injured or in pain doesn't bother me in the slightest. Uh, Number five, driving fast cars, riding roller coasters and skydiving appeal to me. Uh, Number six, it doesn't matter to me if I have to step on other people to get what I want. Number seven, I'm very persuasive. I have a talent for getting others to do what I want. Mm. There you go. That's yeah. certainly my dad had. That going back right back to the beginning, he had that certainly. Number eight, I'd be good in a dangerous job because I can make my mind up quickly. Don't think too much about that one.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, number nine, um, I find it easy to keep it together under pressure. I find it easy. Uh, To keep it together when others are cracking under pressure. I'll read that out again. Sorry about that. I find it easy to keep it together when others are cracking under pressure. Number nine. Yeah. Uh, Number 10. If you're able to con someone, hey, that's their problem. They deserve it. Mm -hmm. And number 11. Most of the time when things go wrong, it's somebody else's fault, not mine. That's called blame externalization. Donald Trump, of course, was very high on that one. Um, yeah. Yeah, right. So, what you should have there, Richard, yeah. is you should have 11 numbers on the page or a screen in front of you. And what I want you to do is I want you to tot those numbers up. Don't say that. Don't say yeah. the total yet. Just add them up. Have you got your total? Yes. Okay. Now, what I'm going to do then, I'm going to read you out the scoring bands. Okay. Now yeah. I will say, Richard, folks at home, because you're doing this and listening to it, we are not diagnosing you. At, we are not diagnosing you a psychopath. This is just a general indication of where you might be on the psychopathic spectrum. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, so zero to eleven. If you have a score of zero to eleven, you are low on the psychopathic yeah. spectrum. If you scored twelve to seventeen, you are below average. Yeah. If you scored eighteen to twenty-two, you are average. If yeah. you score twenty-three to twenty-eight, you are high.
0: Yeah.
1: And if you score twenty-nine to 33, 33 being the maximum score, of course, you are very high. Okay. So, Richard, moment of truth for you, my son. Where did you? What did you get? <laughs> below average. Below average. Below average, you were 12 to 17 in that band. Yeah, I, I was 14. 14. Do you know what, as well? I can, I can tell from the tone of your voice, you've never been so happy to do badly on a test, have you? There you go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can
0: just tell. Definitely room to turn those dials up a bit there, mate. Yeah, that, that is so true. There's definitely, and, and I think it's this. In fact, I was with in a coaching conversa- conversation just a few days ago with relation to this podcast, in fact and right. uh this person um yeah told me that uh one of the things she thought i could do better on was being dispassionate that's something that i would ah. benefit from being more dispassionate which is
1: interesting oh okay well there you go um you given you a few tips along the way so um yeah i think yeah this has so- been
0: brilliant who would have thought discussing psychopathy could be such fun but you you have charmed the pants off me kevin well, um, put them,
1: put, can you put them back on, please? Because, um, yeah, I feel far more comfortable if you did that. Um, good job. Those, good job. The cameras are off. Awesome. That's all I can say. <laughs> so, I always joke, you know, I always joke, you know, often, you know, you, you with a, with us with a topic like psychopaths, um, you've got to, as I said, you know, you've got to work really hard to screw it up. And I'm just not prepared to work that hard. Um, it's just, you know, it's one of those topics that people are perennially interested in. And, um, I've often wondered why actually it's an interesting one. It's, um, you know, that's a, a whole different podcast altogether. What, what the, the allure of psychopaths is. And, um, mm. uh, yeah, maybe we can talk about that at some other stage. There's more than one podcast in this.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, we did, I had a whole bunch of themes on my mind map here. We didn't get, you know, the evolution and, you know, how they come to exist in the gene pool what's the future yeah. for psycho are we becoming more psychopathic as a yeah there's so many avenues we can, we can take it down but hopefully podcast it's, psychopath,
1: it's, two, psychopath 2 psychopath too there you go yeah, no, by, i'd love
0: to do that Kevin. Back by um,
1: popular demand Yep.
0: yeah and uh and again the book for people the wisdom of psychopaths lessons in life from saints spies and serial killers available in yep. all good bookstores by dr kevin dutton we'll put a link uh in the show notes
1: that's great. And if you Anywhere want
0: to, else you want to send people? Um,
1: yeah, website, if you want to, folks, if you want to know more about kind of the work I do on psychopathy and latest stuff, um, com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm on at the real Dr. Dr. Kev. There you
0: go. Excellent. Well, if I can call you Kev. Thank you, Kev. You can. <laughs> a delight.
1: Uh, it's, Richard really, really enjoyed that, mate. Really did. And uh, it was a lot of fun. All, all joking aside, yeah. it really was a lot of fun and um, uh, entertaining, hopefully, but uh, hopefully also enlightening as well.
0: Yeah. No, I'm sure it will be. Thanks again. And thank you so much for your time. And, uh, yeah, enjoy your, the rest of your day in, in the beautiful Cotswolds. I <laughs> oh, will do. Cheers, Richard. Thanks. Cheers.